Last week we discovered um, that if we were going to understand the book of Colossians, we have to understand the false teaching that was going on and the reason why Paul had wrote it. And we don't want to elevate the false teaching so much that we forget the meaning of the message. But, you know, Paul was battling against uh, these Colossian heretics uh, that were creeping into the church and they taught like super legalistic doctrine um, that was kind of based in Judaism. And they, they taught things where they elevated angels and they elevated signs and wonders and they were treating Christ as secondary. And so Paul's whole thrust of this epistle, his whole thrust of this letter is that Christ is all, that, that Christ is above um, legalism, that Christ is above these dreams and these visions, and that Christ is above angels, that in fact Christ is all and he is superior. And as we begin with uh, the first half here of the opening words in this book of Colossians, we'll find six verses that are heavy laden with gratitude from the apostle to the church that he has actually never officially met. We'll find six verses with subtle hints of of the miracle that has taken place in uh, the salvation of the Colossians. We'll find six verses that are enriched by the superiority of Christ, and we'll see the power of the gospel displayed as it penetrates even the deepest, darkest corners of the earth. We'll come to know and we'll learn to follow Um, a faithful fellow servant. His name is Epaphras, a minister of Christ. So it's my hope this morning that we'll all walk away from here different, that we'll all walk away from here with with hearts filled with gratitude due to the increasing fruit of the gospel that we'll see. It's my hope and my uh, prayer this morning that we'll be challenged to join God in his mission more fully. It's my hope and and my prayer this morning that we'll all rekindle um, a spirit of gratitude because of what God's done for us. I hope and pray that we leave here different than the way that we entered, even with just a small six-verse introductory sermon about thanksgiving. And so we know the false teaching that, that Paul is confronting, and, and we know that it's, it's evident enough that Epaphras has gone to Paul while he's in prison to try to sort this thing out. And Paul doesn't just start off by attacking the Colossians and saying, hey, you guys once were really good Christians and now you're believing this garbage. What's wrong with you? You know, he does do that in another place in the Bible in Galatians, but he doesn't do that here. He, in fact, he, he starts off by celebrating them and by expressing his gratitude for them. And so let's examine the first observation of Paul's gratitude here. He's grateful for the miracle of the gospel. And see, we, we spoke about it last week, how the gospel made it to Colossians. And, and in fact, it's a flat-out miracle that the gospel ever arrived to that little town in Colossae. You see, Paul was once forbidden to go to Asia and speak and preach the gospel by God. He wanted to go, and God's like, hey, hold up. You don't need to go over there right now. In God's perfect timing and his providence, Paul got the opportunity to preach in a town called Ephesus, which is, was in Asia at that time. And, uh, and, by, and, and while he was preaching there in Ephesus, this guy named Epaphras came along and he heard the gospel from Paul and he was like, holy smokes, that's really great. It changed my life. Now I'm gonna go take it back home and I'm going to preach the gospel to, to my city and to the towns around me. And, and the gospel spread into that, that place. And so it was an amazing thing that happened and it was nothing short of a miracle the way that it all worked out. Somebody that was once forbidden to go there to preach the gospel was now um, sending the gospel back to somebody that he told the gospel to. It's, it's pretty cool how that works. And so Paul not only expresses his gratitude for the miracle of the arrival of the gospel, but what he really centers on is expressing his gratitude for what the gospel has done and how the Colossians have responded to the gospel. 
Because it doesn't matter. Like, if the gospel goes to a place and you don't receive it, or they don't receive it, or they don't respond to it, then it doesn't matter. Then the gospel just fell on deaf ears, right? And they're to be judged. But the gospel was received by them. They responded to it, and it happened uh, to, to produce fruit. And so how they responded to it was they began to produce these three major Christian virtues. And, and it's, by, uh, it's by these virtues that we're all known by, every one of us as Christians. And, and, and time and time and time again, we see them repeated in the Bible. These Colossians are known by their faith, by their love, and by their hope. And the first virtue that the Colossians are known by is, is by faith, their faith in Christ. So Paul says in verses 3 through 4, We always thank God when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And now, yes, their faith is in Christ for saving faith, faith, but it actually, the meaning of this goes so much deeper. Uh, This faith, um, Christ is the sphere in which their, their faith and their lives act. It's, 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 it's the whole focal point, the true north of how they live their lives. It's their ultimate reference point is Jesus Christ. That's how their faith responds. And one commentator defined um, this faith as leaning your whole weight upon. So if I were to go to this wall and lean up against the wall, I would be leaning my whole weight upon the wall, trusting the wall would hold me up, right? Uh, My son, Rev, he's a toddler. You know, you guys have met Rev. He's off the chain. And he takes these little foam blocks that he has and he stacks them up in the living room next to the chair. And then he'll like take a gymnastics mat and lay it down next to that. And then he'll like do this weird sketchy stuff where he climbs up the mat to the blocks to the chair and then he stands on the chair and he's like got such impeccable balance that he's riding it like a skateboard but he trusts his whole entire weight on that chair or that whole entire weight on on those little foam blocks that he stacked up and one's a triangle and and one's a a square and a rectangle I don't even know how he got up there but he's up there and he's got it you know what I'm saying and his whole entire faith is is in those blocks to hold him up and he believes in it and then he jumps, right? And then he trusts that the mat will catch him. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, when I'm watching him do this as I'm writing this sermon, I'm like, that dude's got way more faith than I do. You know, he's, he's trusting these little teeny tiny blocks. It's, it's the same amount of faith that we put into these chairs to hold us, right? When you go to sit down in that chair, you just trust that that chair's gonna hold you up, right? You, you don't question, hey, most people don't. Are the legs broken? Has this been compromised somehow? Like, you're not like super like, worried about it like yep seems pretty sturdy to me now I'm going to place my weight on it no you you just sit in there and you trust it you exercise this faith and so Paul by way of celebration reminds the Colossians just who their faith is centered upon he reminds them just who they're trusting all of their weight on and, and Paul expresses gratitude to God that he has heard that the Colossians are leaning their entire weight on Jesus who's much more than just flimsy foam blocks or a stupid little chair he is the ultimate rock they can lean their entire weight on to trust in. And the Colossians are also known for their love. You know, we, when, when we say these three virtues, we, we know them better as faith, hope, and love in that rhythm, right? It just sounds, sounds better. And I'll get to it here in a second, uh, but that's what, I, that's what I'm getting to, and uh, you'll understand it a little bit clearer. But the Colossians are known by their love, and, and he continues in verse 4 by saying, and of the love that you have for all the saints. See, the natural tendency for all Christians is to love, right? We, we love because God first loved us. And, and if we're absent of love, then we're probably not a Christian, right? Like, 
that's who, like, that's a mark of who we are, is that we're loving and caring. The fullness, or sorry, I jumped ahead. It's what we're known for. And in fact, Jesus gave this, the, the, the great commandment, right? And he says, oh, to, 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 that, to that lawyer, the Jewish lawyer, he says, hey, What's the greatest commandment of all? And he's like, oh, I know, I know this one. Uh, to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, yep, go and do that. You're good to go, right? Like, that's the greatest commandment that we have is to love God with all that we have and love those around us in the same way as we love ourselves. Jesus even says, greater love has no one than this, that one should lay down his life for his friends. And we're called to follow Jesus. So love marks us. Paul celebrates with gratitude the nature of love that the Colossians have for all the saints. They were caring for the saints. They were um, loving the saints, laying their life down for those who believed in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and as I jumped ahead earlier, we know these attributes or these characteristics as faith, hope, and love. But the reason why Paul put them in this order right here as faith, love, and then hope is because Faith and love spring out of the hope that we have as Christians. Like, it, it's bubbling up like a nice, clean, beautiful well just coming up from the earth is faith and love, and the well is hope. They spring forth from this hope. And, and the hope that we have as Christians is the fullness of blessing that waits for us in the life to come. It's the fullness of blessing when we get to the other side. It, and, and, and what's waiting for us in heaven is a king who's seated by the the right hand of God and his name is Jesus Christ. If we're going to inherit anything, it's, it's Jesus. Because if Jesus isn't there in heaven, then heaven isn't no heaven at all. I want to be where Christ is. And so that's what's laid up for us, waiting for us, is Jesus, is heaven, is no more sin, no more corruption, no more brokenness, no more pain or sickness, but only perfect peace with our King. And so due to the teaching that caused the Colossians to doubt that Christ is all that they need, they needed to be reminded that their present faith and their present love rests on the solid foundation of what God has promised to do for them in the future. And it's actually, this hope is so much more than that. Because if God says that it's done or that he's going to do something, I should say, then it's already done. It's already been taken care of. And, and so when, when, when God is saying that, I, that, that, that you have this hope and I've stored it up in heaven for you, which is what he says, he literally says that this hope is stored up for you in heaven here in, here in the scriptures, then it's already been accomplished. It's waiting for us. It can't be taken from us. It's stored up where no moth or no, no thief can steal it from you. It, it can't be taken from you. It is there. It's stored. It's waiting. It's done. It's accomplished. And so what God has promised for the believer is already done. And it lays waiting for the day when Christ makes all things new. What a beautiful hope we have, a certain hope. It's not like when it was negative 900 degrees outside and we hope our truck starts, right? Or we hope the, the heater works. Or we hope we can get there without getting stuck. Like, that's kind of wishful thinking. No, this is certain, steady, calm, and confident hope that one day we're going to receive what God has in store for us, which is Christ at his right hand. And Paul reminds them that they first heard of this hope in the message of the gospel. And he says this, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, <clears throat> the gospel. See, Paul describes the, the message of hope as the word. 
He describes the message of hope as the truth. And he describes it as the gospel. And he does this to contradict the false teaching that's crept into the church. And you see, the teaching that the, 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 the heretics in Colossae were promoting was false, obviously. It didn't, it didn't give you any kind of hope. It was a phony gospel that only led to destruction. And so Paul says that this hope is the word, it's the truth, and it's the gospel. And let's not ever forget the miracle in the gospel that God literally became man. God stepped down off of his throne on high to be, be, be born in the likeness of man from a virgin, to live a sinless, perfect life, something that you and I could never do, to be betrayed in the garden with a kiss by a friend, to be nailed to the cross, to die there on the cross, taking on our sins, what we deserved, the whole entire wrath of God, to be buried in a borrowed tomb, to raise again after three days, uh, ascend to the right hand of the Father, and to come back. Like, that's all a miracle. Nobody else has ever been raised from the dead besides Jesus unless Jesus did it himself nobody else has no other nowhere else has God ever become man it's a miracle that everything that was ever demanded of us in regards to holiness in regards to salvation has been paid by Jesus on the cross we don't have to work for it anymore he's done it all and so maybe you're saying wait a minute you know how can the Colossians believe this did did the Colossians see this happen you know, were any of the Colossians there when Jesus was born? Did any of the Colossians see Jesus die on the cross? I doubt it. I highly doubt it. I mean, Miranda, were you there when Jesus was born? Anthony, did you see Jesus die on the cross? Tabby, did you see Jesus rise from the dead? No, none of us did. None of us has ever seen that. So how can we trust it? How can we know that this is true? We can trust that it's true because God spoke it, amen? And because God spoke it, and the word of God is truth. It's the absolute truth. So we face a, a heresy today, a false teaching today called postmodernism, and they believe that there is no absolute truth that you can't be certain about anything, that, that there's nothing that is 100% true. Well, I beg to differ. I beg to differ absolutely because we know that God's word is true and we've seen his prophecies come true over and over and over and over again in the Bible. Just in Jesus Christ alone, over 360 prophecies came true in his life, death, and resurrection. Just wait, he's still fulfilling them as he's coming back to return. So we know that this word is true. It's kept the entire storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelations in perfect harmony, telling the same story because it's the word of God and it's true. And the Bible tells us that the word of God in, in 2 Timothy in chapter three and verse 16 is God breathed. It literally is coming out from the insides of God, from his bowels, from his innermost being, and he speaks it out. The Bible is the very word of God and we can trust that it's true. That's how we know that all of this thing, all of this happened. So let's not get over the miracle. Let's not get over the miracle. I want you to think about where you were when you heard the gospel for the very first time. Think about where the gospel found you at. Think about where Jesus found you. Think about the miracle that took place when he raised your dead body to life in him. Think about the miracle that happened, all the pieces that he lined up to get the gospel to you at the very present moment. Think about it. It's your own personal story. It's amazing that it's in a miracle how this has happened. It's the word of truth. It is in this word of truth, the gospel, 
that has penetrated the town of Colossae and, and not just converted a few people, but as verse 6 says, it's bearing fruit and increasing since the day that you heard it. The second way that Paul expresses his thankfulness here is by being grateful for the power of the gospel. <clears throat> and Paul mentions that the, the word of truth, the gospel has not come, uh, it's not, sorry, <clears throat> has came not only to them, but to the entire world. And the gospel, you guys have to understand this, is the only seed that's going to bear fruit no matter where it's planted. I have to come all the way over here because I don't have a pulpit to hold this drink here, so, and I need that in my life. It's the only seed that'll bear fruit no matter where it's planted in the world. And so I say that because it started in Jerusalem, and then it spread to Judea, and then it spread to Samaria, and then it spread to Antioch, and then to Asia, and even on Mars Hill and Athens. The gospel advanced and produced the fruit that God intended it to through Paul and through the other apostles. And as the gospel arrived to a place, it would totally transform the people. It would totally transform the culture. It would transform the way that everybody lived in the entire area. In fact, sometimes it would cause such a great uproar. uproar. And people would say, hey, when Paul would show up and the other apostles, they'd be like, hey, it's them who turned the world upside down. The gospel does that. It literally turns the world upside down. It turns things inside out, and it changes things. That's the whole point of the gospel. It changes hearts changes homes, it changes lives, it changes communities, it impacts the world. And so if we want to see things, I'm just getting off on a rabbit trail, but if we want to see things like the hunger rate de uh, decreased, if we want to see things like the employment rate decreased, if we want to see things like whatever the good thing that lives inside your heart is, then we have to be um, persistent on sharing the gospel because the gospel is the only thing that will change hearts and invoke that kind of change in a society. If we want to see Omaha changed and flipped over, we have to see Omaha come face to face with the God who came, who lived, and who died for them. It's the only way it's possible. The gratitude that Paul expresses is that the gospel is powerful enough to penetrate any city. It's powerful enough to penetrate all of Asia without even him having to go there. It's powerful enough to penetrate cities with even the grossest sins. I want you to think about the city of Corinth, right? A, a, a place with a temple specifically dedicated to a sex god. They had thousands of people who worked there as slaves to this goddess. Gross sin, and the gospel penetrated even that place. And church was born there. And it goes on and on and on. You think that America is bad today. If you looked at Rome, it would make America look like a kiddie pool. But it penetrated and produced fruit, and it began to multiply even in these dark and sinful places. You ask this question, how can the message of a dying Jew in a, in a humiliating way be powerful enough to penetrate? How can the message of a Jew dying in a humiliating way on a cross between two thieves be powerful enough to penetrate? It penetrates because the message of the gospel surpasses all other messages. There's nothing that can stand up against it. It penetrates because the teaching is far more superior than any other teaching. It, there's no other message like it. And, and Jesus was more than just a Jew who died on the cross because contrary to popular belief, Jesus is God. The message penetrates because the simple message of the bloody cross is powerful enough to flip the whole world upside down. And it's powerful enough to flip the whole world upside down because nowhere else in history has a story been told that the God of this universe came and lived and died in man's place. Nowhere else in, in, else in history um, has a story been told that this same God rose again after he was murdered. 
and that he and that he would be the firstborn among the dead and raise us who believe to eternal life nowhere else in history has that story been told no other religion no other teaching and no other following has an empty tomb you can go to every buddha you could go to um, Joseph Smith, you could go to any of those religious leaders and you will find their dead bodies in that tomb still. But in our tomb, in Christianity, there is no body in that tomb because he's rose again from the grave. There's nowhere else in history has the story been told of God who came to this universe and died in man's place, rose again to give us life. Nowhere else in history is there a story of an empty tomb. Because you see, there's real power in the gospel that we proclaim. There's real power because the power of the cross always prevails. I want you to think about it. Pilate tried to stop Jesus by nailing him to a cross. The Jews tried to stop the story of the resurrection with the lying of sum of money, paying the, the Roman guards, saying, hey, you know what? If this happens and the disciples try to say that Jesus rose again from the grave, like, here, take this money and lie about it and say that his disciples come and stole his body away. They tried to stop it with a sum of money and a lie. You know, uh, the, Paul went through shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments. He was hungry, he was cold, he was tired, he was naked, and, and the gospel still couldn't be stopped. John faced torture, and he was expelled to the island of Patmos. I mean, Bibles have been burned, Bibles have been buried, Bibles have been destroyed, Christians have been martyred, they've been stoned, and they've been beaten. And guess what? The gospel still prevails it still continues to go on and it still continues to produce fruit even today around the world 2,000 years later everywhere that the gospel goes it flips the world upside down it continues to prevail why is that happen why is that happening because God is behind it you can't stop it as Gamaliel said uh, if God is behind this you cannot stop this Christ is all-powerful and Christ can't be shut up I want us to notice the language that Paul uses here, and it's oddly familiar with Genesis. And so the Old Testament readers would be very familiar with this. Um, so in Genesis, we see God use this language of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He tells Adam and Eve that, who are made in his image, right, uh, before the fall, be, fi- be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. After they fall and God destroys the world with water, um, Noah and his family come out of the ark, the only righteous one on the land at that time. And what's he tell Noah? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God's desire was for the godly people of that time to multiply so that his name would be spread out, so that his image would be um, justly upheld, that there would be a radical display of God's image all over the earth. Now, we're all made in God's image. Every single one of us, whether we're believers or whether we're unbelievers, we're all made in God's image. I say that because our lives are valuable. We have dignity. However, we're scarred by sin. And it's only through saving faith in Christ that we're being conformed and we will be made perfectly into God's image. And so this command to be fruitful and to multiply finds its total fulfillment in the worldwide transformation of people into the image of God through faith in Christ. So this be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, I'll say it again, it finds its worldwide fulfillment in the transformation of people into the image of God through faith in Christ. This is Paul's mission. That's what he's excited about, that the gospel is bearing fruit and multiplying, that people are being conformed into the image of God through the power of the gospel. That's what he's so excited about. He's celebrating it. That's not only Paul's mission, however, though. You see, it doesn't stop in Colossae. 
It doesn't stop when the gospel made its way to the shores of America. This is our mission too. Like you guys know that fancy Latin phrase on our, on our wall over there that is the name of our church, Imago Dei. It means image of God. We're here in this tiny neighborhood in the middle of America to see the gospel bear fruit and to multiply. Our purpose at Imago Dei is to see the transformation of people into the image of God. We exist to multiply disciples and churches that live and look like Jesus everywhere we're planted. We're part of this Imago Dei mission. We're part of seeing people uh, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with the image of God. That's how it works. So if anybody knew this mission well, it was the founder of the Colossian church. And the final point of gratitude that we find of Paul's here is, is that he is grateful for Epaphras. So Paul calls Epaphras a fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ. And in the letter, we, we get to know more uh, about Epaphras as, as Paul says he struggles for them in prayers, that he may be mature and fully assured in the will of God. Paul says that he works hard for the Colossians and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Uh, See, all of Asia heard the gospel because Epaphras was a faithful evangelist of the Lychus Valley. So he was a, a, a fellow servant. He was a faithful minister. He was a faithful evangelist. He preached and he proclaimed the gospel in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. He made disciples. He planted churches. He appointed leaders. He multiplied and fulfilled the call of God. But it didn't stop there. Even after these churches were established, Epaphras was burdened for them. The Bible says here that he is, in the end of, uh, of Colossians in chapter four, the Bible says that Epaphras was burdened for them so much that he struggles for them in prayer. And so he goes and he seeks answers from Paul and he's willing to be in prison next to Paul. And, and he goes through so much for this church, for these people that he's taken the gospel to. He's got such a huge heart for them. He's struggling for them in prayer. He's worried about them. He's got the heart of a true pastor, the heart of a true evangelist. Epaphras is a true hero of the faith. He's somebody that that Paul expresses highest honor and utmost gratitude for. You know what this reminded me of, church? That that we need the spirit of Epaphras. We need the spirit of Epaphras. We need to be fellow servants. We need to be faithful ministers. We need to be faithful evangelists. We need to struggle over the people that we've taken the gospel to. We need to be burdened for them and praying for them. We need the spirit of Epaphras. So what if we heard the gospel and we took it back to our homes? What if we heard the gospel and we took it back to our families as Epaphras did? What if we heard the gospel and we took it back to our neighborhoods? What if we heard the gospel, we took it back to the people that we knew? What if we sought, our whole life's purpose was to make disciples? What if we woke up in the morning and we said, I'm going to exalt Christ and make disciples this morning? I'm going to to flip the world upside down with the gospel. What if that was our mantra every morning when we got up? What if we were devoted to the mission of God, the worldwide transformation of people into God's image through faith in Christ? What if we were dedicated to being fruitful and multiplying What if we had a spirit like Epaphras? What if the words that described us were servant and faithful? At the end of all of this, all that I want to hear is well done, my good and faithful servant. I don't care about anything else that I did, but if God would say, hey, well done, my good and faithful servant, I'd be happy. But I'd be the first one to admit I could use this spirit, man. The first thing in my mind is not, hey, I'm going to make disciples this morning. The first thing on my mind when I roll out of bed is not that at all. And to my shame, 
I'll be the first one to admit that I do so much before I even consider God in the morning. My heart is so far from him sometimes, but I'm glad that he's so near to me. I'm glad it doesn't depend on my love for him, but his love for me, amen? Like, I'm so happy about that, but by golly, I could use a refresher. I could use the spirit of Epaphras. I could take the mission of God a little bit more seriously. So as we close, I, I want to remind us of the countless ways that we can express gratitude today. May we never get over the miracle of the gospel. Look, I'm, I'm six years into this thing. I got saved in 2018, uh, and I'm not gonna like go into my testimony real far, but I got saved in 2018 in a prison cell. Like some guy randomly came up to me and handed me the Bible. I didn't even know him. He handed me the God's word, Romans Road, chapters three, five, 10. And I read those three chapters and I was saved. My life was never the same. In a dusty old nasty prison cell in Missouri, God saved me. What a miracle. When everybody else wrote me off in society because of the decisions that I made, God decided to pursue me down, amen? Like it chased me down like the hound dog of heaven. And he came and he saved me. I can't get over that miracle. I'm six years into this and I sit back sometimes in my office and I look at the bookshelf and I'm like, Pastor Tanner? Like I got a thing that says my ordination. I'm like, what? You know, I mean, many people that I've done things with in my life would laugh in your face you know, and I'm not trying to boast about me, but it's all that God's done. And, and I say that to challenge you, that you too would not get over the fact that you're saved. Because whether you went to prison or not, whether you served in the military or and you grew up in a nice family home with Christians or not, like our testimonies are all the same. We're all sinners apart from Jesus, apart from God, and we need Christ to save us. It's all the same, man. We're all saved by the same grace and by the same blood and by the same spirit. We need Jesus. So the testimony is the same six years, three years, 10 years, however long it's been, I hope you never get over the fact that God so graciously loved you, brought you from death to life, amen? Sometimes when I think about what God's done for me, I just crumble. And like that song that we were gonna sing, we're not, we're not gonna sing it this morning, but like that song, Gratitude, you know, all I got is, a, is an endless hallelujah. When I think about all that you've done for me, God, all that I got is thank you. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Glory to your name. Sometimes that's all I can say. Have you lost your salvation fire? Have you lost the fire of your salvation? Look, we all go through seasons. I promise you that right now in my life, my fire is not burning as bright as it once did. I can remember sitting on a bunk next to a guy and this guy, man, he just got saved and he's like, woo, man, this is great. Like, how, how do we always keep this feeling? You know, because he used to be a drug addict or whatever and that's all he's after is feelings, right? But like, he's like, how do I keep getting this stuff? You know, and I'm like, man, you just gotta, I'm like new, like been saved for a month. I'm like, you just gotta keep telling people about Jesus, man. You know, like you gotta have a fire about, you know, and it's like, it's gonna keep burning. And he's like, all right, I'm on it. And, and he's still doing his thing today. But have you lost that fire? You know, when you were first saved, many of us, man, we go through these seasons and we, we get to a point where our fire don't burn as bright as it once did. So is that fire that once blazed, is it now a, a smoldering ember? I challenge you, just remember where you were that day when Christ found you. 
Come and be part of this group, this small little body of saints. Because alone, if you take an ember and you push it across the floor away from these sticks and this fuel that's going to keep it burning, the ember's slowly gonna die out. But if you take that ember and you sweep it in closer to where those fuel and those sticks are, it's going to culminate together with all the other embers and produce a a flame as they all burn brightly together. That's how this church works. We're embers together, burning brightly for Christ, but separated apart from each other, we'll just grow dim and cold and die out. So we need each other. We need one another to do this, even a small little church like this. I want you to, I, I challenge you, just remember where you were that day. Remember who you used to be and who God saved you from. Remember the miracle that took place. We were once blind, but now we see. You know that blind guy that Jesus healed at the pool? He did that weird stuff with the spit and the mud and everything else. Like, we don't really know what to make sense of that, right? But he's like, the, the Pharisees are, tell us about this Jesus. What did he look like? He's like, I don't know if you guys noticed, but I was blind before, and then he was gone when I was able to see. So I really don't know what he looks like. Well, tell us about this Jesus. How did it, all these things? He's like, look, I don't know what to tell you, but I was blind, but now I see. It's for some of us, that's the way it is. I don't know what day that happened on. I don't know how it all took place, but I was blind and now I see. Remember that. Remember, I can see. I can see. We have a reason to celebrate. We have a reason to express our gratitude. Not only can we be grateful for the miracle of the gospel, but we can express our gratitude for the power of the gospel. What started in an upper room 2,000 years ago landed on the shores of America and it's impacted culture, society, and people for centuries. It arrived at your doorstep and it radically changed your life. It started years ago with a few small people like this in this room. And now it's gone overseas through centuries, through persecution. Man, it's prevailed. The power of the gospel It cannot, nothing can stand against it. So let's express our gratitude this morning for the power of the simple gospel message that silences all other messages. It's the only message that offers true hope and eternal life. May we express our gratitude for the message that alone gives us rest. I want you to think about the Epaphras that blazed a trail to you to share the gospel so that you might be saved. Think about that and express gratitude to God this morning. Maybe it was You know, that Epaphras was your loving Christian parents who raised you up in the Lord. Maybe it was a faithful friend who took the gospel to you. Maybe it was somebody in a a prison cell or, or somebody at work. Or maybe it was an invitation by a faithful preacher who preached the gospel. I don't know who that Epaphras was, but think about them. And glorify God for the power of the gospel and that he would send somebody to tell you the truth. Those Epaphrases that God placed in our lives are faithful ministers of Christ given so that we might be saved. And that alone is worthy of our thankfulness and gratitude. So what? Has there been a a time in your life that you believed in Christ for salvation? What are the marks of your Christian life? Are you known by your faith, hope, and love? Are you you known by fear, doubt, arrogance, anger? Do you remember the day when the gospel came crashing into your life and radically changed you? Are you being transformed by the power of the gospel? Do you need a spirit like Epaphras? I hope and I pray that you do.